As a young lad, Grant Sharman wanted to be a pilot, but through one of life's changing events, he ended up becoming an artist. He dabbled with pictures from the farm, but his true love is cars. So his canvas subjects are now automobiles. Grant is from Auckland in New Zealand, and he's on the line now. G'day, Grant. G'day, David. What happened in 1977 when you were 15 years old? Well, it was one of those uh, classic moments where I did something that I never I dived into a ruck thinking I was bulletproof uh, at a game of rugby and uh, boom, in less than a second I got my head in the wrong place and I broke my neck and really that was the end of uh, flying for the Air Force and all those things. It was ground zero. It was uh, a reset on my life clock. You were pretty good at school, at sport. I was uh, above average. I mean, I worked hard. I wouldn't call myself a a natural scholar, in uh, the year before, I, I'd heard a, um, a pilot from the Air Force talk about his, his Air Force career, and he'd spoken about flying his Eagles into Vladivostok in Russia. Uh, bearing in mind, this was 1976, and it just really just captured me, and that was, I'd made up my mind, I was going to fly um, Hercules, see the world, join in New Zealand, fly 747s, and retire at 50 with a lot of cool toys, you know, classic 14-year-old boy. So, Everything's about self-interest to a certain extent, and I just really focused on my studies, worked really hard, improved through the ranks, and um, would I have made a pilot? No one knows. No one will ever know. You are a tetraplegic. What does that mean? So tetraplegic, quadriplegic, it basically means four. So four limbs are affected. So basic spinal 101, uh, you've got your, you know, your, your, your spinal cord ring down your back, you've got your topper, which is the cervical and then the thoracic is the main bit. So if you break your cervical, a C, that makes you a quad or a tetra, four is affected. If you break your back, you're a para. So usually you've got full arm and hand function, and that's the basic difference. So I broke my neck and did a pretty good job, really. How do you paint? Well, it's a great question. I can move my arms around and, and that sort of thing, but I can't have a brush in my hand. And so one day in 1980, uh, I was at the uh, Spiral, where I stayed for 11 years, and there was an artist there, an amazing man, called Bruce Hopkins. He spoke to my dad, my dad spoke to me. I went and spoke to Bruce, and Bruce said, do you want to have a go at painting? And I said, mate, I can't hold the brush. Uh, bearing in mind, Bruce couldn't move anything. He couldn't move his arms, nothing. So he said, that's right, you're going to stick it in your mouth. And I just thought, I thought he was crazy. I thought, who the heck does that? So I went up to the OT department, and I gave it a go, it was terrible. I had my first painting. It's in my art room. I told him he could basically stick his paintbrush up his ass. Uh, he said, no, you can have another go. And, uh, you know, I was a sort of 17-year-old kid. So I went up and I, I did my second one, which was, you know, just as bad. And that's in my um, art room as well. And uh, the notes kept going. I submitted six paintings to the Association of Mouth and Foot Painting Artists, thinking I was pretty damn good. And I got a letter in the mail that said, thank you, uh, but no thank you. They're just not really what we're looking for. And I was, I was devastated. Was that because of the quality of the painting or the subject matter? It was both. So, and this is a common misconception, is that the mouth and foot were some kind of charity. We're not. We're a business. We were founded in 1957 on the basis that there are artists who use their mouth or their foot because of injury or some kind of illness. And that's how they create images. And then those images are used on traditionally cars, calendars, wrapping paper, and that gets sold, and that's how we derive our income. And so what I painted 
was, A, the quality was terrible, but they weren't worried about that because I was after a scholarship, but it was the content. And just to illustrate that, one of my images was a skull's cow, which I thought was pretty damn good. But if you then put your commercial hat on, it's not a really good birthday card, it's not a good Christmas <laughs> card, and it's certainly not a good wedding anniversary card. So that was the, uh, was the end of that. So I painted six more, I resubmitted them, and I was granted a scholarship in 1981. And the six more, were those cars or they were just broader subjects? No, no, no. So my foray into cars really only started about five years ago. So you probably need to understand that I'm not a natural artist. I never wanted to be an artist. I wanted to fly planes. Uh, I did six subjects at uh, what was school certificate over here in New Zealand, my fifth form year. And my sixth one was art because I needed a sixth one. And I was terrible at art. It was just a placeholder, really. And I got in the mouth and thought I was painting Christmas cards and landscapes and flowers, all these sorts of things. And I just thought, oh, gosh. And one day I had a guy painting a car. And well, looking back now, it was pretty awful. But I really enjoyed it because for me, being able to recreate something that looks like what it's supposed to be, i.e. kind of a realist style, that was art for me. Now, a lot of people will say, well, just buy a camera and take a photograph. But for me, it was that ability to take an image and convert it into a canvas using watercolours or I use acrylics at the moment. To me, that was a real skill. And it was okay, but I kept doing it and I kept doing it. And the breakthrough was a 1956 Chev, which was uh, owned by a friend of mine who was working on my own classic car. And it was pretty good, and he liked it, and it was exhibited in Vienna. We had a big conference up there, and, uh, you know, people liked it, and I did a couple more. And then the people who had an office said, well, would you have a go at Formula One cars? In Europe, they're very, very popular. Not the, not, not the modern ones, sort of the, the, the slightly earlier ones. And I did. And if I say so myself, David, I thought it looked pretty damn good. Has it changed your perception of the detail of the design of cars, having to paint them and make it realistic? Well, absolutely. It's, I think I like the classic cars because often there's a lot of chrome involved and they just look, look magnificent. They've got lovely lines. You know, I think if you talk to a lot of people who love cars, if you look at the, the modern cars, it's similar. You know, you look at those, the 50s and the 60s, the cars had real character and just their shape, etc. But I've got to say, I'm currently working on Shane Van Gisbergen's V8 supercar. Mm. And you know what? I posted a comment. Why do race car drivers and teams need so many damn sponsors and they have to put them all over the car? I'm not sure that they actually get the clarity of the sponsors. I think they're fulfilling an obligation rather than communicating a message. One of the great designs you had was the Salter's truck. Salter, I think, was a carrier, yes. but uh, now if, I, if I'm right, I think that's a 42 Chevy. You are, you know, you get 10 out of 10. You're absolutely right. So there's a wonderful story with that. So over in, in, in New Zealand, uh, we have this thing called Big Boys Toys, where there's all sorts of stuff out there. And I went along and watched and had a look around. And in a sort of a car park to one side, there's some big trucks. And here was this really cool, classic pickup truck. So I took a photo and I painted it. Showed it to my friend Tony. He said, oh, that's, that's Ron Salter's truck. Well, Ron Salter owns a company called Salter Transport, and they mainly deal in waste oil. 
So I got in touch with Ron and showed him, and um, and he loved it, and he he bought the painting off me. But in the meantime, it was used in a mini card, and it's it's just a great story. And the backstory to that was, I think it was his father actually imported the truck, and it stayed in the family, and it's it's at his place. Uh, we, we were going to have an exhibition recently before the, um, you know, the, the lockdown over here, and he was going to bring it to the exhibition. So the real truck would be there, as would the painting. But you're right on the money, David. You know your vehicles. Well, it's a lovely era, wasn't it? If you look through the 30s and 40s, I was talking to my mate Dean Oliver, who is the resident artist of our motoring program. Every motoring program should have one. And he was saying, you know, that 30s and 40s, the streamlined look, because the thing that really makes it obvious for the truck is the lights, the headlights, they aren't buried in the bumper bar. They aren't sitting on top of it. They have their own sort of moulded approach to it with the lights at the front of that mould, almost a bit like a bug-eyed sprite. So it's, it's a wonderful capturing of the character of the time as an artist you must perceive that now in much more detail than you might have in the past well you absolutely do and you get really quite carried away with the vehicle oh, i paint i have my my studio at home uh, and because I, I have the brush in my mouth i'm quite close so i need to keep going back and looking at it and not getting caught up in one area but you find yourself almost driving the car. And I know that sounds really, really crazy, but you know every line, every detail. You get a real feel for it. You get a, for a love and appreciation, particularly when you're working on cars that are classics where people have put a lot of elbow grease and love and money mm. into restoring these vehicles. You, you just get that sense that you're dealing with a really special vehicle. And I could do a painting of a Oh, you know, the, the, the Chev or one of these cars and then a painting of a, you know, a brand new Tesla. And you know what? It just, it just wouldn't compare. It doesn't do it for you as much? Well, I, I think it lacks the history. I think everything needs a backstory. And these vehicles have a backstory. The era in which they were created... The, the movies that came out of them, the times, the struggles when those trucks were around, people working long, hard hours. There are a number of factors that all go in. And, and like other things, like, like furniture and like buildings, they're kind of a record, a time capsule of what was happening. And what's interesting is when they're being you know, brushed off, they're being restored, you know, the good old baby boomers are, are buying these things up left, right and centre, and there's this massive industry now in restoring them. And they just look so beautiful. One of the cars you had was a Jaguar Mark II, which has a great yes. character. And again, you, you talk about television and Inspector Morse and, and the British police. Mm -hmm. There is great character in that, isn't there? Oh, look, you know, chitty, chitty, bang, bang. You go back to these cars. And one that was personal for me was Steve McQueen in the movie Bullet. Pretty sure there was a, uh, a 69 Mac 1 Mustang. Yep. Now, I don't like all the Mustangs, but that Mustang I just grabbed me. And um, I, I had the good fortune to buy one off a mate, had it for a while, and then I was in it and drove it. A terrible thing to drive. It was like driving an aircraft carrier. But it just took me to that Steve McQueen era. And then as you grow up, I mean, you know, for those of us, the General Lee from Dukes of Hazard, they, they just keep cropping up in our, in, our, in our culture. 
I uh, note that you've owned a couple of cars there. Uh, can you can't control them? Do you do you just own them for the sake of that, or I can. I'm very fortunate. My level of uh, paralysis is such that I can move my arms. So I can have hand controls. So I've got no. So try and imagine an open hand. I, I can't close the fingers. I can't grip anything. But I can use you know, you know use my arms. So I can pull down on a control and push forward and I can put my hand on the steering wheel. So I, so I can drive. I currently have a van which I can wheel in my wheelchair and, and drive from my wheelchair. So I'm very fortunate. Think of it as a, as a spectrum from not being able to move anything to be able to move, uh, move my arms. So I was able to drive them. I had a 69 Mac 1 and I sold that. And my father had a 67 Falcon 600, which a lot of Australians will go, I never heard of one of those. Uh, with the round taillights, and they were produced, I think, in Australia, but they were assembled in New Zealand, and I think they were predominantly for the New Zealand market. I know I rang for some parts from a, a Spears guy in uh, Sydney, I think it was, and he just said, look, there's no such thing, and I said, well, fella, it's in my garage, so it exists. And you've painted it. I did, yes. Yeah, that's actually the second one. The first one just didn't look good. That one at least looks looks good, and it was one of the great artistic lessons, uh, I'm a bit notorious for taking shortcuts and, and often my preparatory drawing and, and the scale and perspective, I kind of rushed that through and think, oh, I'll fix it later. Well, you can't hide. As you get further into the car and you're working on the detail and the wheels and just how it looks, suddenly a wheel really shouldn't be there or the windscreen's just not quite right or the, the, the right front fender, that's terrible. So I've learned the hard way to spend a lot of time getting that right and correcting it before we launch into, you know, the finished product. And so the one you see there with the, the kind of red background, that was my second attempt. And that one, that one's okay. That's actually owned by my cousin uh, in the UK. He, he drove it when he came out and um, yeah, there's a lot of good memories in that car. You are a determined lad, if I might say that. Uh, you've also been a, para, a para-Olympian. Well, I've got to say, I like the word lad. You can do that all day long, David. I'll take that, that's for sure. Um, yes, look, I've been extraordinarily uh, fortunate, and my, my fortuitous art career has allowed me to do that. You know, as an artist, I don't paint my life. I probably should, but I don't. And so my ability to earn you know, a living doing that, but also at the time to look at other things. And I, I broke my neck playing rugby. I then, when wheelchair rugby came along, I played that much to the absolute horror of my mother, uh, who has since passed. And, um, yeah, I just, I loved the game. I ended up captaining our New Zealand team and then coaching it and uh, was very fortunate to have some success at the Athens Paralympics. So, oh, I've been very fortunate. Uh, could you can't grab the wheel of your wheelchair though how do you power it is it motorized i just wondered then if you would have hotted it up no 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 well they were hotted up so if you look at a, a a wheelchair rugby chair and then compare it to what we call a day chair your everyday chair it's like talk, chalk and cheese i mean wheelchair rugby is a full contact sport it's pretty it's pretty damn brutal uh, i i certainly would like to be playing it now and there are different grades so obviously i was at the the bottom end of functionality through to those who had more function who were faster, et cetera, et cetera. But it, look, it was a great sport. And these things had pick bars and, you know, front ends and, and, and uh, all sorts of things on them, you know, uh, splayed wheels and tip bars and 
reinforcing, and they they took a terrible punishment. One of the funniest things you ever saw, I remember the team assembling to go off to play in some tournament, and here's all these wheelchair rugby chairs that are used for basically dodgems, really, full-impact dodgems, and the, the airline uh, person going along and putting a fragile sticker on it. <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, it's, yep, okay, fair enough, that'll work for planes, but not on the court. <laughs> it's like a demolition derby, a warning sign on it. <laughs> oh, and look, when you watch the modern game, and I talk about the modern game, I retired in 2000, finished coach in 2008. The, the modern game, there's some terrific players in Australia. Uh, I think it's currently ranked number two in the world, and they've got some incredible players in there. And the just the philosophy and force and, and skill it's just uh, jaw-dropping, really. But just while we're talking on, on hotting chairs up, there's actually another great sport. It's wonderful how these things are created, called uh, power chair football, where they do use um, uh, electric wheelchairs because of their functions even lower, but there's the special design and they have quite a big ball, and it is like a football. It's three aside, or probably four aside, and just the way they do that, there's a real skill to that. So... That kind of adaptability around vehicles and new things and just, you know, it's really quite special. So you do do commission work. If I have a car I love, I can commission you to paint it? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I I am an artist with the mountains, but my job is to to paint images. So I paint them, but then I I submit them and hopefully they kind of separate them and then they might use them on cars, calendars, other products we're looking to create online business here in New Zealand uh, because their direct mail business is, is changing as we are with the times and then people could see those images on tiles and other products, etc. So, yep, I will um, look at the vehicle and, depending on what it is, paint it and, uh, you know, you would get the original but we would retain the copyright. So how do I find you? I look up... Now, I think the Association of Mouth and Foot Painting Artists, it's called VDMFK. That sounds to me more like a number plate that has a, a rather risque meaning. I don't know how you get those letters, but is that an international body? Yeah, so there's a very simple explanation there. So the association was founded in 1957 by Mr Stegman, and VDMFK is German for mouth and foot painting artists, the initials, the acronym. In English-speaking countries, we obviously use English, so mouth and foot, MSTA. And each country has its own publishing house that are part of this sort of global um, enterprise. We have around probably just under 800 artists worldwide in over 70 countries. So we're, we're a big organisation now, and we are giving people with a physical disability the opportunity to earn a, earn a living. So, in terms of uh, the you know Australia, Zealand, NFPA.co.au uh, in Australia and .co.nz here in New Zealand. But you'd be able to make contact with the office and contact me directly. I mean, if you go to my website, they can contact me there because as artists we can you know, paint and, and do commissions, etc. But it's just that our copyright is with the mouth and foot for obvious commercial reasons. Grant Sharman, S-H-A-R-M-A-N. If you type that into a search engine and put the word artist after it, you should have no problem at all. Grant, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. David, thank you for your time. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. 
and that is Grant Sharman, who is an artist who paints cars, as in put on canvas, and he does so by his mouth because of a sad accident, but boy, what a guy with a great attitude and a zest for life.